Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a celebration of the Lord of the Rings film's 20th anniversary. But we are convening a secret council here today to give our reactions to the latest trailer for The Rings of Power. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today we are discussing the newest Rings of Power trailer that dropped Thursday, July 14th. But first, our spoiler warning. As always, anything from The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films and books is fair game, as are Tolkien's letters and other works in the leg- Legendarium. I want to add that we may talk about events that will be depicted in the show, so just beware. I assume you're listening to us for those gritty details, but, you know, alas. And just a little preview of our plans for the Rings of Power show coming up. Um, we will be putting a pause on our Two Towers coverage uh, so that we can fully focus on the show. Uh, our plan is to record uh, the Friday or immediately following the release of the new episodes so that we can get you those episodes by the early the following week and ahead of the next episode. Uh, patrons will still be receiving episodes earlier, so there is still a benefit to being a patron on that side. Um, and at this point, uh, we should have rebranded our patreon.com slash nuclear bomb to a Patreon slash my brother, my captain, my podcast, or my bro, my cat, my pod. When we rebrand, we will also be establishing a Discord server um, in which you guys will all be able to convene and talk about the Rings of Power and all things Lord of the Rings as we continue our coverage. There was a time when the world was so young. There had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was light. Okay, so we got a new trailer, and I figure we'll just give some quick overall reactions, and then we'll kind of work through the trailer roughly shot by shot and see if there's anything specifically we want to talk about. So, Emily, you first. Oh, fuck. Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, I guess to head this off, uh, I literally slept for like 90 minutes last night. So, if I sound extra <laughs> delirious, that's why. I promise it's not because this thing has made me that crazy. Um, yeah, I... No, I'm going to be nice. I'll start with the good. Um, so, I think it, like, it, visually, it looks much better than I was expecting. Certainly much better than the pictures uh, they've been releasing in Vanity Fair looked. Uh, and I feel like I always kind of have this thought whenever I see like exclusives in Vanity Fair, fucking fire your photographer. Like they're really bad looking. Um, that doesn't seem to translate so far into what we've seen. Maybe it's just some really like extra good editing. Um, but like visually it, it, it is very competent. Uh, the, the, the sort of color work that we've seen in this trailer, uh, teaser trailer, I guess, is really, really impressive. Um, I think the thing that really stuck out to me, there's like a kind of quick glance at uh, Numenor, some folks in Numenor. Um, and there's a really sort of rich indigo blue that you see on some of the costumes there. And that was a color I don't think I've actually seen in in like big blockbuster film uh, in probably more than a decade. So it was kind of nice seeing that. I think like there was a lot of like rote competency and in, in the, the stuff that we uh, were, were shown in this teaser trailer. Um, that's that was really nice. Um, I think they chose to lead with who I am expecting to be their best actor in the series. So Morphid Clark, um, I think having her, uh, you know, not just positioning her 
there because she's Galadriel, but positioning her there because I think she's probably one of like the most immense kind of young actresses, actors, actresses right now is a really good call. It means that at least in this, um, they know where their strong suits are. Um, I think the music was impressive. Um, I it didn't sound like the shitty kind of Hans Zimmer bullshit that everyone's finally bored of and admitting being bored of. Uh, I liked the singing again, not quite the throat singing, but it is kind of half summer of throat singing, maybe like autumn of normal singing. Um, I like um, I like some of the visuals they had. Uh, that were continuing on from the teasers, so kind of answering the questions, some of, well, partially answering some of the questions asked in the earlier teaser. I think that covers it. Um, and now I'm going to be a cynical asshole. So, like, it is a lot to me, I think, interesting. But um, the best I can say so far is that it looks technically competent. Uh, and I think it speaks to the kind of shit state of entertainment generally that, like, uh, when I am desperately grasping for something to be nice about i have to be like well they can do their jobs that's for sure like damn if i couldn't do my fucking job the way people in hollywood couldn't do their fucking job i would be out on the street with no money um so a little weird that there's this like vastly different kind of scale of uh like assessment there i am fucked off about a lot of the press uh that has accompanied it again it was again in vanity fair it was this intro to numenor that was like I read that at like 3.30 in the morning uh, after struggling for like six hours to fall asleep. Uh, and I and I kind of just like had this moment where I was like, maybe I have fallen asleep. Maybe this is just actually a really bad dream. And this is a stress dream where like the Catholic guilt that is innate in me is just like kicking me repeatedly in the teeth for being an asshole. Uh, and maybe that's what this is. And then I realized that I still had not fallen asleep. Uh, <laughs> and the words that I was reading on my screen were real. <laughs> uh, and that was a lot. Um, yeah, it, it kind of bittered my whole experience, to be honest. Um, and I think as I kind of brought up in the last teaser trailer episode that we did, um, they've kind of made a game out of this where like fans can only really lose um, because so much of the press they've done surrounding this is basically like, if you're a Tolkien fan, if you care, if you show that you care about the source text, then you lose, then you're an asshole. Um, and the fact that they, you know, they can't go a single interview without being like, well, Tolkien fans, Tolkien book fans will be horrible, douchey dickheads um, about these like objectively insane narrative choice they made here, like condensing a thousand years down into 20. Uh, like, you know, these Tolkien fans who are cunts and and don't deserve to have like nice things, uh, you know, they'll think this, but everybody else who doesn't really care about anything will be rightly rewarded. Uh, and I think that's kind of shit because I, I, I don't like this like kind of ethos of if you care, you lose. Um, I think that is not just like ideologically quite shit, but it's also totally against the like heart and soul of Tolkien's writing. And uh, J.R. Tolkien was many, many, many things. Uh, and of all of the things that he was, he was always someone who cared. Uh, and so I think seeing this kind of press tour where they're basically like, fuck you for having an interest um, makes me bitter and makes me less willing to be generous with them and their work because I'm like, sorry, like you spent your press run up for your big billion dollar show where you're going to take home paychecks bigger than what I'll make in my entire career calling me and people who have interests like me cunts and assholes and like pretentious freaks. And like, I am a pretentious freak, but only I'm allowed to call me that. Uh, and yeah, so that's fine. You know, there's technical competency in the trailer. Um, I think, 
if they hadn't spent so much time being such jackasses in the press, I think I may have actually felt a little bit of excitement. And I think if they also had held the Numenor stuff and not run the Numenor stuff at the same time, I think I would have been way more forgiving and uh, cheerful. So yes, that is your Debbie Downer to start off this podcast episode. Now, that's really interesting, especially because a lot of those comments from the showrunners or writers or uh, whoever, they feel like very unforced errors because outside of like our little world, like even among Tolkien fans, there is some level of excitement and anticipation for this. Um, so I don't know why they're preemptively firing these shots across the bow. Um, and m- maybe they just fucked up the material that badly yeah. and they're just prepping people for it. But it's like... You could also just not say say it like yeah. like all the one ring dot net and Don Marshall on TikTok like all these people I assume are like super obs- or assume I know they're super obsessed with Tolkien and the Legendarium they're like you know essentially doing promo for the new show by being so hyped for it uh, and like what value are you getting from saying Tolkien fans are going to be mad or you're not listening to them um, because like you say it's not a bad thing to care and I want someone. What I look for in adaptation broadly is just thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. Like you actually sat there and thought about it. Um, and whether you thought about it like we need to recreate this to a T or we need to severely change this, at least I want to show like that thoughtfulness can still come through. We've talked about like, say, Dr. Strangelove before as like taking the source material in a radical different direction but there was still care involved in adapting and creating that adaptation so um the other thing i'm thinking about is and this is gonna kind of veer off into a tangent and i haven't yet given my own reaction to the trailer (laughs) yet but um i've listened to a couple podcasts about the latest thor movie a movie i was deeply dissatisfied with and both of those podcasts that i listened to open up by triangulating against the critics and people who say that the movie sucks. Um, And I'm just like, you don't need to do this. (laughs) Like, if you like the movie, you can just talk about liking the movie and what you liked about it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we're, like, so busy triangulating against the most, and I don't mean this as a positive or negative, but, like, the most insane people out there. Yeah. And I'm not trying to call Emily insane or anything. But, like, (laughs) like, it's like, we we don't you don't need to be do that especially from the production side or people yes. working uh, in creating that you absolutely do not need to say anything about it or talk about it or whatever yeah um, and I think that's something I just hate about current media broadly is I don't need the Russo brothers or Taika Waititi explaining what they did in their latest movie or how they think time travel works or yeah we know way too much about the creative process of making these movies where the movies almost feel like just part of a broader content package yeah it's like yeah the movie's here but the press tour is its thing and the merchandise is its thing and it doesn't actually stick out as a work of art anymore it's just part of the content sludge that we constantly talk about yeah i think this is actually a really good point because i think like um i think you are right to bring up like the don't triangulate around the insane people and i will actually plant my flag here uh and kind of a cell phone and be like i'm definitely like the insane pole of attraction in terms of like tolkien fans like my takes on um 
on on Tolkien's material are not just like they don't just like sit orthogonal to like Tolkien's own takes, but to like takes that anyone who spends like 30 seconds reading this, which is about the <laughs> the amount of time you should spend reading it, whatever, like reasonably come up with. Like, like I'm definitely like, number one, I'm not the kind of person, a fan you should be catering to when you're trying to do this stuff, because it would be impossible to fully cater to me. Um, and, uh, and, and number two, I'm also not really the fan you should be trying to talk to, um, because I'm unfortunately like a captured audience. You know what I mean? I'm always going to watch mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. fucking bullshit. Um, and I think there's this kind of problem where like a lot of these creators are, are, um, terrified of the fans who they really shouldn't care about, to be honest, like, like, like I, I will put my hand up here and say they really shouldn't care about people like me. Um, and, and you see this kind of lack of courage in their convictions or in the choices and decisions they make. Um, and I think like, this is kind of the thing that we get into like in the, in the sort of normal, in our normal programming on this podcast, where it's like, you know, I really fucking hate a lot of the choices that Peter Jackson made. I really fucking hate them. I think they're bad, but I can't ever really get that mad about them because for the most part, Peter Jackson and team really f- believed in the choices they were making. And so it's hard for me to be like, well, you know, you kind of dismiss them out of hand because there is at least that sort of conviction and and, and sort of faith and trust in the decisions they've made and, and kind of feeling that they've made the right choice. And even though I sit there and think, you know, that's fucking wrong, I trust that they think they made the right choice. But these guys are already seated ground. They're already seated ground on a TV show that hasn't been out yet. And like from all of the reviews that have like been published beforehand from the sort of previews they've given the press, like people seem to really like, the critics seem to really like. So this is a show that's going to get treated disproportionately fairly. Um, to be honest, based on what it, the material is, people are going to love it anyways. And yet they're already caving. Like, what the fuck, man? Have some fucking faith in yourself. Otherwise, the fucking big schoolyard bullies like me are just going to fucking pants you and steal your money. Yeah, after things like Kenobi and Hawkeye and stuff, it's just like, if it's attached to a big IP, it's generally going to come out favorable, both from critics and from fans. How much of that is just corporate capture of the criticism fear or like yeah. legitimate like belief that it's good? Um, who knows? But um, like, you just really don't need to. And um, I, I can speak from experience. Like, even when Game of Thrones was like, good and like everyone thought it was good in like the first like four seasons or whatever there would still be like a fucking dumbass remark from uh the two showrunners and that would be literally the thing we talked about on twitter you know in in between the episode as opposed to oh hey that was a great episode and charles dance and lena Headey killed it it's more like oh what david said in the behind the episode after was just like completely missing the point and granted he was missing the point. I won't, I won't uh, <laughs> obscure that, but it's just like, you, you, you don't have to do this. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you just let the kind of show stand on its own, I don't need you preemptively putting up shields like, oh, but these people won't be happy with it. Then if they aren't, then don't worry about them and worry yeah. about the, you know, most of the people will enjoy it. It seems like um, it just because most people enjoy most of the content that they end up consuming. Yeah. Uh, I, I just don't see any re- there's really at this point zero value to me from hearing from creators, um, especially before something comes out, uh, you know, maybe down the road when they give a little, you know, eulogy of their careers, I'd be happy. Oh, this is what I was thinking when I wrote this or decided to do this. But um, I, I don't know. It just feels weird to make. And this is supposed to be part of a hype cycle. Yeah, <laughs> this is supposed to be making people excited and you're actively talking down to 
a portion of that audience, whether it's a very small sliver or not. It just, like I said, it's an unforced L to me. Yeah. Um, well, and they're not even going after the people that do deserve to be gone after. Like, they really have not, they've been jarringly quiet, I would say, on the, like, Nazi contingent of the Tolkien fandom. And, like, I, I like feel like I cannot stress this enough. There is a Nazi contingent of the Tolkien fandom because the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and Tolkien's work is fetishized by Nazis and white supremacists worldwide. And these fucking showrunners with a billion dollars of Jeff Bezos money are like, we're not going to talk about those guys who absolutely we should be dunking on in public. Instead, we're going to dunk on the people who have a fucking opinion on whether like Tar Muriel's rape is actually a rape. And like, I'm like, I'm, I'm not being funny. Like it, it scans to me as like, wanting the well you know we talked about this in the last kind of episode we did they want the cred for like having cast a couple black women in it but they don't want to do any of the work of like actually protecting the black women in the cast from like the vehement racists they'd rather protect themselves and their egos from psychopaths like me who have learned how to speak syndrome you know what i mean like fix your priorities in the words of david lynch fix your hearts or die yeah, yeah. No, it's it feels of a piece with Disney like throwing all its weight behind defending Chris Pratt um, yes. just because a couple of people said like he was kind of a dick. Um, <laughs> but then when you have people like, you know, Kelly Marie Tran or Daisy Ridley or John Boyega, like all basically being run off social media in full, um, it, it just like where their priorities are, because there is bad fandom. That's been something we've learned very much to our detriment in the last like 10, 15 years mm-hmm. is, and I, bad fandom goes way back, but like specifically has really become a cultural force uh, yeah. recently. Um, and like, they're not doing anything to push back against that because they still value those dollars, um, I guess. And not so much like the eight people who are pointing out, you know, the problems with their adaptation and all that. So yeah. I guess after all that, I should at least mention <laughs> my reaction to the trailer. Um, and that is to say, I, I like this this trailer I liked. Um, I think broadly, it looked good. Um, I think it looked a lot better than A, the first trailer did. Um, and it also looked um, a lot better than I anticipated the show looking in terms of a final product. A lot of that is because I actually think we saw a lot more tangibility on screen, um, like actual landscape shots, um, actual sets and better looks at some of those sets. Um, and I think all that worked great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the voiceovers and the narration generally worked in terms of setting a tone and like a premise or mission statement for the show. Um, I think the music is great. I think there's a very specific like Lord of the Rings light motif in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I think the rest of the music just specifically works. Um, and I, I just, I just think it looks better than I was anticipating. Yeah. Um, at this point, I don't have much else to go on because I am, I'm going to be going into this and covering this as someone who's going to be like, does this work as a television show? Does this work as an eight episode season? Do these episodes work amongst themselves as a, you know, episode of television? I'm not going to be able to tell you how inaccurate the timeline is per se. That's why you know Emily is here and she will definitely <laughs> let you know. But like, I'm mostly looking at it. Is it going to succeed on its own terms? Um, and at least this trailer was the first time I have some real confidence in that. Yeah. Um, it at least looks like they, like you said, with Morfid Clark and the show playing to its strengths. Um, I think something like, you know, centering her, um, really invoking that Howard Shore style music, um, investing in those landscape shots and um, 
all those kind of neat tricks that we saw in the Lord of the Rings films, those are ways that you can win me over. And then assuming the story generally makes sense and tries to communicate what the themes are from what Tolkien was laying down, that's where I get a little, uh, um, but you know, I'm the guy who says, you know, it's cool when Legolas flips on a horse. So, um, there are ways they can win me over or or that I can be really into the show, um, even outside of the whole adapting, you know, the film or the, the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, which I don't know if you want to mention anything about that, because I think the other thing about this trailer is I think the scope of it and what material they can adapt is a little broader than we had initially anticipated, even based on what people were saying about the show. Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of the thing that made my jaw drop uh, at whatever ass crackathon uh, it was when I was watching this. Um, so we 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 saw they show uh, Laurelin and Telperion, the two trees of Valinor. We saw that that was one of the first images they they released uh, for in support of the show. Uh, and I remember kind of having this back and forth with people online where it was like, well, is this Valinor proper or or is it Gondolin? And 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 what are we sort of looking at here? And it now seems to be confirmed um, that it is Valinor proper. I mean, not seems to be confirmed. It's absolutely Valinor proper. Those are definitely Lorelin and Telperion, not not the sort of descendants thereof. Um, so so what that means for anybody who doesn't fucking keep an index page in their brain of Tolkien references and where they pop up, and um, that means they have they're they're pulling a lot more from the Silmarillion than I thought. Um, I think I have to double check. But I don't actually believe that Larlin and Talperion bear a mention in The Lord of the Rings, bar a brief reference at the end of Return of the King when Aragorn finds the seed of the White Tree of Gondor. And I think Gandalf sort of gives a little bit of exposition there about what the what the sort of uh, Isildur having having stolen the the the, the, the fruit um, off of the summit descended trees from Larlin and Talperion. Um, there may be a reference in the light of Eärendil, Galadriel, maybe mentions it in Lord of the Rings, but for the most part, Laurelin and Telperion and, and their sort of position in in Valinor, like literal physical position of Valinor, is a, a, a very explicitly Silmarillion thing. Um, and this is surprising to me because I was under the impression they were only allowed to pull from The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Lord of the Rings appendices, and they were not allowed to touch the Silmarillion. And this is, the Silmarillion has sort of been like the third rail of, of Tolkien adaptations for uh, well, since since it was published in the seventies, um, and uh, when Christopher Tolkien was alive, um, he well, when J.R.R. Tolkien was alive, he was very adamantly against uh, film adaptations. Generally, he even fucking hated the radio ones that he heard, uh, the kind of lost radio uh, adaptation the BBC did. Um, Christopher Tolkien towed the line quite hard on not letting people adapt the Silmarillion. Uh, he and his family kind of let uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings book uh, go uh, for for adaptation rights. Um, but the Silmarillion has not been touched uh, and, and has sort of famously been out of uh, reach. Um, you know, the, this game that I play, uh, the MMO, Lord of the Rings Online, which is, I think, probably the finest adaptation of, of Tolkien's work uh, ever done, uh, bar none, um, is, has like quite obviously never been allowed to touch the Silmarillion uh, in, in any way, shape or form. Uh, they do a really good job of kind of sneaking references in without actually like naming the things. But that has always been the kind of absolute outer limit of what you're allowed to do with the Silmarillion. And this show starts its trailer with a big old 
Silmarillion reference, not even a reference, like a big old scene from the Silmarillion. Um, and this is very surprising to me. Uh, this is this is a lot of a lot of I hate content. I hate saying the word content. This is a lot of uh, of storytelling material that I thought previously not available to them that now seems to be open. Um, there's like, you know, we'll, we'll get into it as we go kind of scene by scene, but there are a lot of references. There's like references to the Balrogs that sort of uh, near Nath and Nodiad, which is one of the, the sort of major battles of uh, the recounted in the Silmarillion. Uh, there's the, the the sort of history the uh, history of Laurelin and Talpirian, but there also appears to be a lot more built into Galadriel uh, and, and certainly her relationship with Elrond, which is stuff that comes from the Unfinished Tales, the tale of uh, Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, there's a lot in here. Like, there's a lot in here, and I kind of can't even fully wrap my head around it yet. I've been in my head, um, uh, you know, at work today, I've been kind of trying to, like, piece together what like could reasonably be constructed in a sort of lawyerly way as like, well, it's not technically the Silmarillion versus like what is obviously the Silmarillion. I mean, I think I talked about in the first teaser trailer episode that we did that like, I fucking think we see Finrod, uh, Finrod Vilagan to his Gladriel's brother, uh, who is the first elf to make contact with, with men, uh, who is, uh, you know, a, a giant of the Silmarillion, but only mentioned in the Silmarillion. And, and that was kind of the first moment where I went, oh fuck, what do they actually have? And the answer seems to be a lot. I don't like, I can't even begin to guess. I mean, everything with this Numenor stuff, the Akalabeth, which they seem to be hinting at, that is a book of the Silmarillion. Um, I, yeah, I, like, I, I can't even kind of put this together in like a logical, coherent way right now, because just seeing that kind of opening shot, literally shot across the board there, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is, they've got, they have, Amazon's lawyers have done something potentially deeply fucked up and ethically not okay uh, to get this. And I think we're probably going to get a film adaptation in one way or another of the Silmarillion, which is not something I ever expected to see in my lifetime. Interesting. I, I know nothing about copyright law and, well, law generally. Most laws are bad. <laughs> um, but I kind of... I kind of wonder if it has some or works kind of functionally the way like Sony getting Spider-Man from Marvel at the time does where it's just like so if like say the two trees are mentioned in the Lord of the Rings that's almost like a key which allows them to yes. access all that Silmarillion stuff just because it has a mention here thus we can go to other material that also mentions it. So that's pretty much exactly how the deal works except it's very very limited. So it's like um uh, take for example Feanor, who who actually gets a mention in uh, in the uh, Lord of the Rings at the door. No, is it at the doors of Moria? Maybe it isn't Feanor that gets it. Celebrimbor definitely does. Celebrimbor gets mentioned at mm -hmm. the doors of Moria because he helped he and and the dwarf Narvi created the the, the gate of Moria together. Um, and Celebrimbor gets mentioned as uh, as an elf. Oh, this is where the Feanor reference gets in. A, 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 a sort of ancestor of Feanor. Uh, who was a smith and a Regian, uh, and who has some relationship. I think Gandalf mentions that there's some relationship to Gladriel, potentially. That would be all they would be allowed to touch. They would be allowed to only touch Celebrimbor as a smith and a Regian. Celebrimbor's grandfather is Feanor. And they may not even be able to t say grandfather because if the relationship is only like distinguished as a descendant of, then they wouldn't be able to put that specific bit, which is from the Silmarillion, which is the grandfatherdom. And they would also be able to say he had a relationship with the dwarves, but they wouldn't be able to go any further than that. And um, this seems to me like they've been able to go 
Well, Calibrember is, well, not even seems to me, they definitely have Calibrember as a big character in this. Uh, Calibrember gets mentioned in Lord of the Rings, therefore we have the right to adapt everything. That's a big expansion of scope. <laughs> like, big fucking thing. I think if, like, Sony and Marvel had that going, it would there would be, like, a literal bloody war in a courtroom over this. <laughs> like, they would be stabbing each other to death for, like, control over the rights. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I guess... What we know is still kind of muddled and it's kind of a we'll see, I guess, still. Yeah. Um, maybe. Uh, so next. Um, so because of our Patreon release schedule, I can't say when everyone's going to listen to this. But uh, if you're on the public feed, um, this will release right after the San Diego Comic-Con panel, um, which will hopefully shed some light on a lot of the questions we have. Um, we'll probably come back with at least one more proper preview of the Rings of Power. Um, and hopefully the stuff that's revealed at San Diego Comic-Con um, will be able to something we can bring to this podcast and include in our preview and hopefully iron out some of these question marks that we have. Uh, so I guess without further ado, we can talk about this trailer proper. Um, I'm going to give one warning up top. I am probably going to use the word people a lot <laughs> and just know that people might refer to men or elves, probably not dwarves. I'll probably be able to single them out. But when I say there's like a group of people walking across a landscape, that is not saying it's necessarily men or, you know, the predecessors to men or anything like that. So, so this trailer opens up with uh, some Galadriel voiceover. Um, there was a time when the world was so young and Emily's taunting me in the notes by sticking some Fontaine. I dreamed a dream uh, <laughs> right there into it. Um, but what we see here is uh, first we get like this giant stone uh, face um, that looks a little more trollish than human, I would say. But it is a very giant sculpture um, and the camera is kind of working its way through a canyon towards uh, somewhere in Numenor. Um, and I think this is the part where um, we hear like a very Howard Shore leitmotif, if not straight up uh, a Howard Shore leitmotif from the Lord of the Rings film. I feel like it was a Rivendell uh, yeah. piece, but I couldn't quite place it. It could be Lothlorien, which would make more sense. <laughs> uh, but, you know, elves are elves for the most part in the visual adaptation so far. Yeah, uh, this is... <sighs> So the, the, okay, sorry, there's like so many things in here already. This is why I was like at like three o'clock in the morning this morning. I was like, what am I watching? Um, so the stone face, I think maybe an oblique reference to the Pukel men who are the, the statues that are carved into the mountain by sort of uh, unnamed men of the second age, uh, sort of lighting the road up to Dunharrow, which is where the Rohirrim muster before they head to Gondor. Uh, that is a second age reference there. I'm not sure if that's spot on. I'll have to go back and double check, uh, but I think that might be what that is. Uh, the Rivendell, I think it is Rivendell. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Rivendell. And um, so this is Bear McCreary as I think the one who's doing the music for this. And, and I don't think the show composers tend to do the music for the trailers and the teaser trailers, but this does sound quite Bear McCreary, who does sound quite Howard Shore, like Howard Shore, but with a better kind of batting average. Um, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because I think at one point Howard Shore was definitely in talks to compose. I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of signed over a bit of the music. He's a very enthusiastic lad about the Lord of the Rings generally, uh, so that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, Galadriel, holy fuck. Um, yeah, Morfid Clark, 
uh, again, I say this every time we talk about the show, go watch St. Maud. Uh, go watch St. Maud. Uh, and if you ignore all of my other insane opinions, which is absolutely right to do, please take this one to heart. Um, St. Maud is who Galadriel actually is if Galadriel weren't an elf. Uh, and I think that is already starting to come across here uh, in, in this scene. And, and they have realized rightly that she is probably going to be their best actress actor in this series. And they got to keep her up front. Even if people are going to be like, well, she's not Kate Blanchett. She's I, to be honest, I think she's going to overpower Kate Blanchett in terms of acting capability. Uh, I think she's going to do it easily and cleanly, uh, probably working with much worse material. So they are dead on for getting her right up front here. Yeah, I think that much is pretty much clear. She has a presence on the screen. Her line deliveries are great. And as much as I love Kate Blanchett and her Galadriel, um, she has about like five minutes of total screen time yeah. she has to eclipse to actually have more of an impact. So um, I think it, it's completely right that she should be at the lead of the show, such as there is a lead. Um, we even get a close-up of Galadriel eyes in this. And just in that close-up, it has a very Blanchett look. Um, and it's also one of those kind of very tight close-ups that remind you of Peter Jackson's uh, film trilogy yeah. as well. Um, so I, I know, you know, one of the things that people are kind of not thrilled with is how closely it's probably going to hew in terms of visual and audio to um, Peter Jackson's films. Um, less so that those are bad, um, more so that it's just why not do something new or try to like you know, light your own way through the darkness kind of thing. But Oh, yes. Sorry, that's just triggered something in my brain. Um, the, the, so this Numenor article in Vanity Fair is dog shit, and I find it deeply offensive, like not even in a joking way. Like I think like covering, not covering up, but like uh, erasing the narrative rape, like an actual rape that occurred in the narrative to be like, this dude is actually like uh, the fucking Varys of uh, Lord of the Rings is heinous. I think it's really bad. I think it's a sign of like the kind of ideological compulsions that certain uh, Church of Latter-day Saints members, uh, showrunners, are bringing into this series. Um, like, all that's bad. The Byzantine Gondor costumes, or Byzantine Numenor costumes, however, almost was enough to save it for me. And that was a much ballsier take on the costuming than Peter Jackson's crew did. And I think that was really good. And it's, again, one of these things where if the showrunners had just shut the fuck up and not insulted me in writing, like, I would have been like, great, this rocks. Um, the, 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 like, kind of cheapness that we were seeing in some of the other costumes doesn't seem to be there in the Numenor stuff. Uh, there's one dude sitting in a chair in the Numenor spread. I have no idea who he's meant to be because he's not an Aryan and he's definitely not a Sealder, but there's some teenage boy looking like he walked off the cast of Stranger Things. Like, he's so far the only costuming weekly I've seen so far, but that Byzantine stuff is good, and that's a good divergence from Peter Jackson's films, and I'm hyped about that. And if they, like, have the balls to carry on with that, that'll be a really good way of kind of distinguishing themselves, but they have to fucking find their spines. The Galadriel voiceover continues next. It says, there had not been a sunrise, yet even then there was light. Um, and this is accompanied to a shot of an elf who's uh, bounding over a hill. And as he, you know, approaches its peak, um, off in the distance, we see the two trees, Laurelin and Telperion, um, and as well as a city, which I thought was Tyrion based on reading other people thinking it was Tyrion, but I think Emily might have a better answer. Oh, uh, I, well, I thought I was thinking Valimar, uh, because Laurelin and Telperion are kind of just on the Bay of Eldamar, just down the way from, uh, Valimar. Uh, 
uh, Tyrion is also a good call. Uh, there are not really that many named cities in uh, in in uh, Valinor, so I think that might be the right case, like the right call for Tyrion uh, with uh, the elf who maybe is Elrond. This is again, we've been doing this since this image came out. I think it's meant to be Elrond. I think that's Elrond walking up, but I'm also just gripped by this fear that it's that it's Finrod and they're going to do like a surprise Finrod reveal. And if Finrod has like Steve Harrington hair, I'm going to become way more insane than I am now. Uh, yeah. So I'll take Tyrion. I will accept that. Uh, Tyrion Tuna. Uh, I will also, uh, agitate for it possibly being Valimar. I think that kind of approach, distant approach might work. Um, the other thing I just wanted to point out here is Morphid Clark is keeping her accent, her Welsh accent, and it's coming out quite, quite obviously here. And maybe she's not keeping it fully. Maybe she's softening it up a bit, but that's good. And it's going to boil a lot of piss, but that's absolutely the right accent that the elves should be doing. Like Tolkien was a, a, a sort of, a, well, not sort of, Tolkien was a scholar of um, British, Br British Celtic languages. Uh, Welsh is, is kind of the exemplar of that still existing just now. Uh, and she's fucking right to keep it. Uh, and I hope people get mad. <laughs> and I hope they stay mad. <laughs> <laughs> Following a shot of the Prime Video logo, super important, um, we start getting a series of landscape shots. And the voiceover at this point changes to a someone singing. Um, I'm not sure who. Um, but the words are, come to me, come to me, a land far away. Um, the first landscape shot we get is of kind of a misty plain, like right at the foot of some mountains. Um, there appears to be some fields with some like streams or tributaries. And we see a group of people kind of moving across it. And that goes uh, nicely into the next landscape shot, which is atop a snowy mountain. Um, it's a group of people again walking, and it could be the same people. It's not really clear. Um, but as the camera kind of crests over the mountain, uh, we see a eagle or at least a bird that's much larger than, you know, normal bird. So I'm going to say eagle, but uh, what are your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, so the, the kind of movement of people here um, is good and interesting um it uh, so uh, at the end of the first age uh, fuck never eat try to eat uh the western part of uh of middle earth uh, the western part of the continent of middle earth uh Beleriand is sunk in in this massive battle against uh morgoth and sauron uh and uh one of the things this does is trigger massive waves of migration throughout Middle-earth. Uh, and so you've got this combination of the Noldoran elves who have sort of been ambling their way over from Valinor since, since their uh, semi-expulsion, uh, uh, semi-fleeing, I guess, uh, led by, by Feanor and the other sons of Finway. And the Second Age is a time of like great movement and migration in Middle-earth. You get the movement of the hobbits, you get the movement of the dwarves, the various migrations of the dwarves, you get the elves, the, the Noldorian, the high elves, and the Sindar, and the sylvan elves all mixing and mingling. You also get the colonization efforts by Numenor. So this is when Numenor, uh, despite how the kind of prologue of the Peter Jackson film sets it up, uh, like the Numenorians are in Gondor, uh, the land that would later become Gondor, from well before Isildur and Anarion and Elendil uh, kick off from Andania. Uh, they have settled like Dol Amroth and Belfalis and and the sort of uh, far south of Gondor. They've settled Harad uh, and Umbar. Uh, they've had breakout splinter groups from their their sort of colonial entities. Um, there's a lot of sort of 
people movement, demographic movement. And and if, if these shots are actually alluding to that, then that's, I would say, a dub. Like, that is a correct interpretation of, of what these facts kind of say, and that's a right kind of theme to be picking up on, and that kind of precarity enforced by, uh, you know, losing a fucking half of your continent beneath the waves, uh, and also this kind of age of empire. That's a good thing. The voiceover then switches over to one of the Harfoots, who are proto-hobbits, um, I believe it's Nori, kind of the main focus uh, of the hobbits that we've seen so far, but uh, that's kind of unconfirmed at this point. The value of doing one of these reaction episodes, you know, hours within doing the trailer is we don't have all those confirmations yet. But anyways, the um, Harfoot narration reads, elves have a forest to protect, uh, which uh, gives us a rotating shot of Linden, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see golden trees with kind of gazebos and roofs that have architecture similar to that of Rivendell. Yeah, and this is a good call because Linden is the realm of Gilgalad, Gilgalad or Ennian, the, the the high king um, of, of the elves, of the Noldorian elves, uh, to whom Elrond is a herald. Uh, and, and Elrond has, and in, in the Silmarillion certainly, this very, very close relationship with Gilgalad after he uh, is abandoned essentially by uh Maglor uh and and Maedhras uh in their sort of search for the, the Silmarils, Gilgalad kind of steps in to be this next father figure for Alronda. And the joke for like Silmarillion fans is like Alronda's baby uh, and has about ten different dads and Gilgalad is like dad number nine. Uh and Gilgalad's realm in in Linden is kind of one of the most significant ones. Uh Linden is is the 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 sort of High Elvish name for Assyriand, which is like the Eastern land. Uh, the, the Sylvan and Sindar elves call it Assyriand. If you play Lord of the Rings online, you'll see it uh, as Assyriand, but it is Linden, and this is Gilgalad's bit. And so having that Rivendell call back, uh, which is mostly to the work of like Tedney Smith and Alan Lee in terms of the architecture. Having that callback, having that reference is good because it shows that there's like a kind of continuity of uh, of like aesthetic choices between Gilgalad and his uh, effective son Elrond uh, when Elrond establishes his own realm in Rivendell. So that's that's a, another dub. <laughs> um, real quickly, uh, you might have mentioned this, but uh, uh, Linden, where exactly would you place it on Middle Earth, like regionally? Yes. Yeah, so- so, uh, like, Linden is kind of the only bit of Beleriand that, that like, makes it through the War of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, like, your kind of... Fuck, I keep having to do this. The Compass Rose. Never eat Shadow Wheat, the West. <laughs> it's the very, very far west of Middle-earth. Okay, yeah. I actually did know this. Sometimes I ask you just because I don't know it, but this I knew, but I figured uh, we might as well uh, make that clear since it's not a... Uh, location that a lot of people might be familiar with if they only know the Lord of the Rings. So yeah, the Harfoot voiceover continues and says the dwarves have their minds. And now we get a shot inside a mine and it's presumably Moria. That seems to be where most of our dwarvish activity is going to happen. We see various brazers and torches like lighting the way there's various like housing or apartments built into the rock face. There are a couple of bridges that are spanning the area. And we even actually see some greenery in here. We see some just like foliage or hanging shrubs and vines. Um, I probably is artificial. I assume the dwarves just wanted some green space in their uh, community. Um, and then we get also get some sunlight coming in. Um, something we briefly talked about when the fellowship was in Moria, um, they kind of reserved the one sunlight beam coming from the outside for, um, 
Balin's tomb, but there were, I believe, several more um, allowing light into the main halls of the Dwaro Delph. Uh, I might be wrong, though. So, Emily, what do you think? I'm going to start this off with a mine. They call it a mine. Because uh, that's been in my head since that shot came up. Uh, yeah, so the Moria, uh, Mor- the mirrors of Moria, uh, say that 10 times faster. Um, they use basically a hole at the top of Moria to uh, shaft light into Moria itself using like a really complex system of mirrors. And, and so by the time the fellowship get there, like it's the dirtiest fuck, it needs a Windex. Uh, so a lot of them aren't working. Uh, but like Moria itself uh, at its kind of uh, a peak, it, its apotheosis as a civilization would have been full of light uh, and probably could have actually like, not probably, I'm sure it's a somewhere, like could have sustained actual greenery because the dwarves were really, really clever with their engineering. Uh, and this is kind of meant to be like this like feat of technological architectural technological capability that is leaps and bounds beyond these like fucking provincial elves and the the men who can't do anything but youth scythes and the hobbits who haven't even like figured out how to make fire yet <laughs> oh yeah i am well aware of the dwarves engineering capability because i have seen the hobbit the desolation of smog <laughs> oh, where no. they have these giant kilns <laughs> and these giant buckets of like melted gold that they can pour and these little aqueducts that carry it everywhere and cover the dragon in gold yeah oh, and boy. i definitely saw that at one point <laughs> lord the harfoot continues um like i like i said earlier you know he was they were talking about they have the elves have forests to protect, the dwarves have their mines, and now we come to the men and their fields of grain, and we just get a shot of essentially a bunch of people working the fields with scythes and wagons and haystacks. Um, behind them, we see wooden houses with like thatch roofs, and it's all just along a hillside. It doesn't look like a very big community here. Um, and this is possibly where the fiction or new to the show Bronwyn character is from, which I'm basing that based off of some other reading I was doing ahead of this episode. But uh, that's all I got for this one. Yeah, I don't have anything particularly like, clever or interesting. Uh, I'm bitching in advance of knowing what this is, but I suspect that this is probably going to be some sort of element of Rovanian, uh, which is sort of middle and north of Middle Earth. Uh, it's like it is a region that technically encompasses like everything south of Esgroth and Lake Town to the Arid Nimrace, the White Mountains that uh, separate Rohan from from Gondor. So it's a huge huge area, but it's also where like the Northmen roam the various sort of nomadic tribes. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's kind of a lot of movement there, at least as far as the men are concerned. Uh, you know, fine, probably going to be an interesting story, I guess, uh, there. And I just got kind of annoyed because, like, I think the story to tell here would be the Numenorean colonization. Uh, and I think we won't get it because, as I've mentioned repeatedly, one of the showrunners is Mormon, which is like a, a religion that is effectively a cult of uh, a cult of Americanism. And so, like, recognizing colonialism uh, and, and the sort of, like, uncomfortable realities of it is probably far out with the, like, ideological remit of the show. But, like... I think this kind of need to have like the kind of nice, gentle hashtag cottagecore provincials in every fucking film, uh, including including in the Peter Jackson films, which is why like Rohan gets all of the emphasis and Gondor gets none of it. Like, I think that sucks. I think that's boring. Um, I'm sure Bronwyn, which is a it's a real name. It's a lovely name in real life. I hate it in the Tolkien stuff because everyone uses it for their like. This is such a 2000 year, 2003 bitch, but everyone uses it for their like 
Mary Sue self-inserts and they're like, my character's name is Bronwyn and she falls in love with Aomer and her and Aomer go mm. and have 30 kids and she's also a shield maiden and that is just what it evokes in my head every time I fucking hear it when it's not like an actual <laughs> person. So I'm just like going through heart palpitations here. Now, one thing I'm actually curious about the structure of this show because we're seeing, you know, various groups of people and um, various races, various cultures that are spread out a little bit around Middle Earth in the Lord of the Rings, and uh, more so in the books, actually, than the films, but, like, there's a clear through line, and we kind of discover the world as we follow the Hobbits and then the Fellowship a little bit. Um, obviously, you know, they tease us Saruman, and we see a bit of Rohan before we're actually in Rohan. Um, but, like, all of the, like, there's a clear through line, and I don't know if this show is going to kind of set itself up as kind of, like, ensemble, maybe more, like, Game of Thrones, which is actually one of the organizing texts for the show, and like have all those kind of disparate threads kind of come together, or if there is going to be kind of like one through line and we kind of meet these people as say one of our major characters do, or how that's all structured. I'm just very curious how they juggle it. Um, what do you think of the way that the Game of Thrones show handled all of those threads? Do you think like do you think that was like kind of an effective way of doing it? Um, I think I think it was. Um partially is that is that's how George Martin's material is, which, you know, gives them because it's just bouncing around. This is a John chapter. Now we're in Essos with Daenerys. Now we're back with Tyrion and wherever um, like that was built into the structure. Um, I it kind of like that first book and that first season have that kind of fellowshipiness where it's like there is a straight through line. There is one specific main plot and that's just whatever's happening with Ned Stark. Um, and then his death is kind of what scatters the Stark kids to the wind, but it also just scatters the plot into a million different little silos. Um, and where we stand right now with the books, those silos haven't come back together yet to form like one main plot once again. Um, so I can, I can't really tell what I want this show to be. I feel like, yeah, I, I don't know what would be most effective because I could, I don't really know the story they're telling and I don't know how they're going to change the story they have to work with because they're condensing, what, like 2,000 years into... <laughs> yeah. Who, who, what, like three... Who knows how many... Yeah. It could be like five months worth of um, in-time narrative. But I think, I, I think for like big prestigious shows, doing like the main... Um, like starting as an ensemble piece and bringing things together for a satisfying narrative conclusion at the end of season generally works well. Um, in a film, especially with like a fantasy dumb audience as we had in 2001, it made sense to kind of hold your hand and have one person or a couple people lead you all the way to the finish line or at least lead you to the point where everything kind of splinters off into its own way. Um, but I, I really don't know if anyone is a better way to do it. But I think for TV, I can see the ensemble from the get-go being the best way to go. Word. But hey, uh, if we do have lead characters, they might be the Harfoots, and the Harfoots are still doing the voiceover thing. <sighs> and then, uh, so that voiceover ends with, we Harfoots have each other. Um, and this is actually one of my favorite shots in uh, the entire trailer. Um, we basically have a shot of the two guys with like the elk antlers on their backs that we saw from the first uh, teaser. Um, and we see them off on the distance. They're on top of the hill, and they still just appear to be traversing the landscape. Um, but then the foreground, which was mostly just brush and straw and little like willows or whatnot, um, it starts turning, and the focus perspective shifts. And we see that like some of that underbrush is actually like one of the Harfoots themselves. It's a combination of their hair and whatever they might have on their back or their heads or whatever. And this Harfoot uh, pulls out like a flute or a whistle or something like that. Um, and I just 
I like this shot because a I like the kind of perspective shift and um, the change that there's kind of more going on in frame that your than your eye expects or suspects at first uh, blush. Um, and I also like the fact that it's building off shots that we saw in the first teaser. I think a very good way to you know successfully stack your trailers um, is to actually take stuff that you presented in the first teaser and then keep adding context so you kind of build towards the actual release of the show. And I think this did it well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Harfoot narrator, Irish accent. That's interesting. And so the Harfoots are hobbits. Um, the, the, there's kind of this weird thing that they're doing in the press. I don't know if it's like the, the kind of press team for the show are doing this or just like journalists are like wildly misinterpreting, uh, Tolkien wiki. I assume Tolkien gateway. Uh, the, the Harfoots are just hobbits. Uh, they're, they're just, they're just hobbits before they get to, uh, to, to the Shire. Uh, there are like a couple different kinds of hobbits. Um, it's interesting and kind of funny to me that the lead Harfoot we've heard so far has this Irish accent, uh, quite a good one. If it's not their, uh, like normal accent. Um, if it is, then great. Glad that they haven't been Britified for this. Uh, but in Lord of the Rings online, which has the other kind of hobbits that are not the Shire folk, uh, the store hobbits, uh, they're all Invernesians. So they all sound like they're from Inverness. Uh, and when I like walked into their little settlement in, in Latro and heard the fucking Invernesian hobbits, I about fell out of my chair laughing. Uh, and so I was kind of really charmed and tickled to hear like a, a non West country, non whatever the fuck Elijah Wood was doing <laughs> with his accent. Very Variation on the Harfoots. So that was nice. Um, I also think it kind of lends itself to like the this whole kind of shot has the shot, and I don't mean this to sound derogatory. I'm quite nostalgic for this era, but like Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, like it feels like <laughs> one of their music videos, and I kind of dig that. Like I'm 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 kind of into that kind of uh, 2010s nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, it's like a 2010s kind of like pastoral uh pastiche yeah i know exactly i have that first edward sharp and the magnificent zeros or whatever <laughs> yeah uh, yeah uh, home and uh, what 40 day dream is that the other banger yep. on there yeah anyways uh speaking <laughs> of bangers the harfoot start dancing <laughs> um and then i think we get a shot of a different harfoot this is marigold brandyfoot which is a mashup of two hobbit last names we <laughs> kind of are aware of um and uh she is played by sarah zwangobani and She's saying that we're safe, um, which is supposedly about whether the hobbits have or Harfoots have settled in a new safe location or that they're still their existence is hidden from people. I don't exactly know. Um, it seems based on everything we've discussed on our podcast that people weren't really aware of the hobbits yeah. or the small folk, uh, really, uh, like both in the third age when the, our story takes place. But it even seems like historical records are pretty slight on them. Uh, so um, this could apply in either way. So. And that leads into Nori, who is our head Harfoot, um, watching the meteor streak across the sky, which is very similar to a shot we got in the first trailer. But I believe this one, we just get like an extra second or two more. So we get a little better focus of her looking at it um, as it crashes into wherever it's crashing into. Um, I'm going to cry if uh, I have to see one more person's disappointed face when uh, they ask me if I know what the meteor is and I have to be like, I have no fucking clue what the meteor is. Um, I have, I'm going to say it here now, officially, my official statement, statement to the press. I have no fucking clue what this meteor is. I can't even think uh, like what it might be. It's definitely not the Blue Wizards. All the people online who are saying it's Blue Wizards, read your fucking books. They don't come up here. Um, It may be Sauron, but like, Oh, you and I were actually talking about this when we mm -hmm. saw whatever the 
teaser for this teaser trailer was, but like it could be Sauron and maybe they're considering like starting the show with a bang by sinking Numenor like within a second of the show starting and then having Sauron immediately jump from the sinking of Numenor to uh to Middle Earth, which is canonically what he does. And maybe this is Sauron arriving in in as Anatar and in, in Middle Earth. Uh I like I don't know what this is. I can't even begin to like pull apart what it might be. For it to be in sort of Harfoot land as well is going to be like proper Ravadian as well. There's not really a huge amount that that happens of this kind of nature. I originally thought maybe it was like Arendil and they were going to do a whole thing with like Elrond kind of fighting, kicking out against his like million and one different fathers versus his actual biological father. I have no idea. And like, guys, it really does make me sad when you, you ask me this question and I can't answer you. I'm so sorry that I don't fucking know a goddamn thing, but I unfortunately do not know a goddamn thing. Uh, based on something we're going to talk about in a little bit later in this trailer, um, there are some strong Sauron vibes to it. Um, I'm just wondering how he became a meteor that's like flaming through the sky. Um, I don't know exactly how he left the West or if he was expelled or they like put him in a trebuchet and launched him <laughs> while on fire halfway across the continent. I know Angry the Alps have some. Uh, bra- <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. Um, I think. Anyone who's somewhat familiar with A Song of Ice and Fire will know that the red comet that appears um, at the end of the first book, but is really a key part of the second book, kind of exists to be a thematic point because all the different characters see a comet in the sky and all the different factions think it's some kind of symbol or herald or portent for things that apply to them. Um, And it's really, it becomes an exercise in the projection of power like this you know Lannisters think oh we got a red comet that means the Lannisters are going to win because red is our color um Daenerys thinks it heralds the birth of dragons which you know she just gave birth to dragons um so it becomes a very fun thematic uh, point it's not a plot point but it's kind of a theme and a way to drop characterization um I don't have high hopes that this comet is going to be that I think it's going to end up being some dude um <laughs> but it is always interesting to see because it looks like a lot of people see this meteor streak across the sky um by people I mean characters in the show um so it's curious if they're all going to have their theories or if some people are going to know what this is um very curious to see how this one plays out with that the music really ratchets up in the trailer and we get based on the works of JRR Tolkien on screen Um, We get a shot of the waterfall in the snowy mountains we saw in the first trailer. This is one of the least impressive shots to me just because it's all (laughs) fake. It's all clearly CGI. Um, The landscape shots we saw earlier were better. Um, But then uh, we find uh, a man or an elf man talking to Galadriel somewhere, probably in that setting. And he is saying, you have fought long enough, Galadriel. Um, And then she just, uh, Morphid Clark just kind of gives him a very pissed off look (laughs) and then sticks her sword into the snow. Okay, sorry. I am delirious. But it's just, it's not, there are two guys, two elf dudes. This isn't Elrond talking to her just now? I don't think so. I think it it could be Elrond. We we don't see clearly, but the scene we see of Galadriel and Elrond talking later in the trailer is in a different setting. Right. Okay. I was like thrown for such a loop because I was like, you know, it's a it's an Elrondy line, but it's also not because Elrond is his mother or Elrond is not Elrond's mother in law. Galadriel is Elrond's <laughs> mother in law, and what a weird thing to say to your mother in law. Like I know they've got a weird relationship anyways, but like it felt a little off, but okay, that makes sense. If it's not, if it's not, that's that's way more in line. 
I don't love like everything going on with the snow shots here. Um, the cross guard on the sword had some funky little uh, craft work that I liked. It was kind of like tangly with a lot of curves and some empty space in there. Um, so I'm glad to see some of that and some of the armor that um, Galadriel's wearing. Uh, disregarding the question whether or not she should be wearing armor, especially in this climate. <laughs> um, I will say like at least some of the craft work looks good given some of my other doubts about some of the other costuming that we've seen before and we'll see later in this trailer as well. So next up, uh, we cut to Elrond, uh, whether or not that was Galadriel talking to him or not, but uh, this is in a different setting. Um, and this is, uh, what's it called? I think Elrond is telling Galadriel to put up her sword, meaning, you know, um, in a way that I mean, I think means to put your sword down, um, like, you know, kind of hang it up on the wall kind of thing. And then Galadriel gives him another not super happy look. And her uh, comment this time is the enemy is still out there. Um, we see a shot of people with torches working through a snowstorm to this, um, which uh, I'm going to just skip the Game of Thrones analogy <laughs> here um, and just move on to Galadriel saying uh, the question now is where. Um, and then we cut to elves in kind of a snowy or icy cave. Um, it reminds me of like several dungeons I played <laughs> in various Legends of the Zelda games. Um, but this shot also has one of those kind of perspective foreground background shifts where we just think we see a group of elves kind of walking through this cavern. Uh, but then like kind of what we assumed was just kind of the rock rock and the shadows in the corner. It looks to be a giant hand, which would possibly be indication of a troll or a snow troll. Um, we do later on in this trailer see um, Galadriel fighting what appears to be a troll. So it could very much be a continuation of this scene. So I think Galadriel going postal, which seems to be what this is implying uh, against the kind of uh, counsel of the people around her, is a move. I think I agree with it, but I agree with it with like some caveats, which is that like historically in the kind of meta discourse surrounding the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, Galadriel is treated as someone who is like very wise and and kind of very calm and reserved and and resolute. And I don't think that's true at all. I don't think anything in the character, her characterization in either the Silmarillion or in uh, the Lord of the Rings lends itself to that besides her like not really yelling ever and not actually like running around with a sword. Um, I think that is like a totally weird, fucked up, wrong fan canon Mm -hmm. fan and characterization so i'm kind of interested to see this like potentially going postal gladriel and um, what i find a little worrying is um i say that gladriel is a little bit unhinged and how she kind of goes about things like she decides to go do colonialism um with the Feanorian. So Feanor goes because he's chasing after the Silmarils. And like the, these are these things that he's, that he has spent all of this time crafting and, and have been stolen with him. All of his sons go because they've sworn the oath of Feanor and they're all hothead freaks. Galadriel and the Silmarillion is like very explicit about this. Galadriel goes because she wants to rule a realm of her own. So she is explicitly going for imperial purposes. Um, and that is something that is like really, really sort of underrated in, in her characterizations. Um, but it's, also important that like that is treated as a bad thing like it is not like a ooh rah rah yeah Gladriel's going to do imperial girl boss shit and that's really good like no actually Gladriel wanting to go be a uh, like wanting to go against the word of god to go be an imperialist is a bad thing it is a character flaw it is not something that we should be like cheering on 
So if they do take that position of Gladriel's fucking up uh, by doing this insane stuff, then like, great, I'm hyped. If they don't take it and take the, all these men, including Elrond, are being such misogynist to Gladriel, who's just trying to be a girl boss with her sword, then I'm going to take the sword that I have behind me uh, in my office just now and like beat myself bloody because it is, a, it is a blunt sword and not a sharp sword. And that's probably the best I can do. But I'll be mad about it. <laughs> No, I, I definitely second that as well. After we talked about the colonial impulses of the elves uh, <laughs> specifically so much on our podcast already, um, I would love it if she's using the pretense of Sauron or great evil, whatever it is, to build her colonial project. I think that could be some really fascinating storytelling. Storytelling I don't anticipate, but uh, it could be uh, interesting at least. Yeah. So we get a shot of uh, another Numenorean city. Yeah. It's hard to tell from this angle whether it's part of the city we've already seen or it's something new. Um, this one looks a little more um, built into the cliff face than anything we've seen of the other shots of uh, the cities of Numenor. Um, but we see a lot of very familiar like watchtowers and like circular battlements that remind us a lot of kind of how Minas Tirith looked in the original uh, or the films, rather, not the <laughs> original. Um, but uh, I, th I think this is still the same city we have been seeing, but it's just enough of a different angle, and we're seeing enough new stuff that we can't actually say one way or another. At least we can't within hours of seeing the trailer. Yeah, so I'm wondering, so there's a couple cities of note in Numenor. Uh, the one that I suspect is going to be most immediately relevant to this story is Andania, uh, the Lords of Andania. So Andania is a bay, is a city on the bay of Andania uh, in 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 Numenor, um, and the Lords of Andania uh, are the the sort of house from whence uh, Elendil is sealed there in an Aryan hail. Uh, so the uh, the Lord Valandil, I'm pretty sure it is, is last of the Lords of Andania, and Elendil, who is his son, takes off to, to lead the faithful to to Middle Earth to start Gondor and Arnor, Gondor in the Northern Kingdom, rather. Uh, so, so Andania as a Bay City is why I suspect this is probably meant to be, uh, and that's a really big, significant one. And based on how much they're hyping up the Elendil and Isildur stuff, fair enough. Uh, but then there's also Armenelos, uh, and Armenelos is the capital city of uh, of Numenor. It's the literally the city of kings, um, and that is not on the water. So this could be two different, uh, two sorry, two different cities. Um, but it's important because it's got it's kind of near the base of Metal Tarma, which is the big holy mountain in Numenor, like the one that Tarmiriel climbs when when uh, Eero sends the wave to to flood Numenor. And um, she, after having kind of held her faithfulness to to the Valar, uh, knowing that the world is ending around her, tries to climb the slopes of of Metal Tarma as the sort of last act of like either like desperation or like a, a show of faith, a show that like she had never fallen to to sort of Sauron's seduction. She climbs up that and then. Dies, drowns there, um, and that is kind of one of the significant places, and that's close to uh, Armenelos. Uh, so, two potential cities for this. I suspect it's going to be Antonia. I think they're probably just going to make Antonia the capital, uh, which whatever, that's fine, I guess. Uh, but yes, um, it, there's also really great art of this. Uh, Antonia tends to be the one that like all the kind of traditional Tolkien artists paint. So if you have some time, just go look uh, on Google or Pinterest or Reddit or whatever, and you'll see some really, really, really beautiful art that's well worth your time. Next, 
uh, comes another Galadriel and Elrond exchange. Uh, Elrond saying it is over. Galadriel saying you haven't seen what I've seen, and Elrond's like I've seen my share. And then uh, Galadriel responds, you have not seen. Uh, I should have made Emily and myself try to read these lines for you instead of trying to recreate it. But I think what follows is probably the shots people are going to talk about the most. They're probably the most visually striking in the entire trailer um, because there's an entire shift in the color palette. Um, there's a whole red tint to the film. And we see Galadriel. Um, she's essentially covered in suit or ash or something like that. But she's definitely caked in something. Um, and then when she says the words you have not seen, um, we cut to the shot of it looks like an underwater shot of bodies floating around a tower. The tower that's like above water appears to be on fire. Um, and there is one body on screen that appears to be impaled, but there are at least 20 bodies on screen as I try to count. Um, they all look dead. Um, and uh, I'm guessing that it's underwater because if you look closely, you can see kind of like ripple effects near the top of the frame um, that would give vindication of water. And you also see little air bubbles and reflections as well. Um, so if that is what it is, I think they're actually doing some pretty good detail work from as far, far as I can tell. Um, it's all clearly CGI, but other than that, I don't really know what this is. Do you have any ideas, Emily? Yeah, so people have been floating Tempest of Fire, which is a line that refers to the Balrogs uh, in in Lemon and the Silmarillion. The Balrogs moved like a Tempest of Fire. Uh, I don't think that that's what this is. If it is, I'll be impressed. Um, the Balrogs of the Silmarillion are far more numerous than, than like, obviously. They're far more numerous than their Lord of the Rings uh, uh, comrades. comrades. Uh, they show up. They're also, like, way more overpowered. Uh, this is not me doing my, like, oh, fuck Gandalf thing. Like, they are just, like, a lot more terrifying as an, of an entity in the Silmarillion. Uh, and, you know, part of that is because the Silmarillion has, like, far more poetic uh, language it is told like a lay like a like a ballad like an epic poem uh so it does hype them up quite a bit more than the lord of the rings book which is a bit more kind of restrained in, in how it chats about them and it could be that i don't think it is i suspect ah oh, fuck i don't know so between the like ice which to me says the halcaraxo which is the ice that that uh that galadriel and the the sort of uh, Finwayans who were not the Fenorians uh, had to cross when going from from Valinor on their exile to uh, to Beleriand. Uh, maybe it's Hel the Helcaraxa, or maybe it's a reference to the Helcaraxa, uh, and then this kind of red stuff. Maybe like a reference to some of the first battles of the War of Wrath, like. Like, I, I truly don't know what the fuck is going on here. Maybe it's all just going to be, like, a dream. Um, But I think they might be trying to kind of superimpose Galadriel into some of the the kind of bigger moments of the Silmarillion that she isn't explicitly said to be in. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I guess the vision thing is also a good thing to point out, Um, especially if they're kind of, like, vaguely going to say the elves can have visions like they did in the films. I forget mm. how that stands canonically. Um, but, you know, they talk about what Elrond has foreseen or what Galadriel has foreseen. So um, it could be something that they play that way. But so now, uh, you know, the trailer starts telling us that this September, uh, the legend begins. Um, this is this is uh, shown to us with a ship sailing into Numenor, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, it has uh, golden sails with with what appears to be a sunburst design that spread actually over two sails. 
Um, the sails are arranged in a way that um, it almost looks like wings on the boat or like frills on a Dilophosaurus. I really don't, <laughs> I'm not a seafarer here, so I can't really say, but it looked different enough to me from like real world designs where it's like, ah, yes, this isn't a boat I would see like in the Chicago River or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but uh, do you do you know what this is? Um, so I suspect... I suspect I'm really struggling to remember this shot here. Um, I suspect this is meant to be a reference to Arfarazon. Uh Farazon is Arfarazon is the 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 usurper ruler, the last king of Numenor. He's the one who uh kowtows to to Sauron and brings down brings on the downfall of Numenor. Uh, I, I can't even get myself started on this thing that they've done in Vanity Fair and how angry it makes me that the fact that like he like rapes Mariel, Tarmariel is apparently just not playing into this narrative. Whatever. Uh Arfar is on Faraz in in Adenaic, which is the lay language of Numenor, means uh golden. Gold, rather. Uh Arfarazod means like the golden one, the golden king. Uh so I suspect this device, this heraldic device, might be his. I just really can't remember. Um and the ships I think may be based off of Tolkien's design for the Numenorean helmets. I'm going to have to go back and double check, but I think these may be actually based off of Tolkien's hand-drawn designs. I'm pretty sure. We next get a top-down shot from like the giant statue guy we've seen in a lot of the preview photos already, like the giant statue um, in Numenor. Um, but this we're kind of like kind of behind, behind and above his head, so we're looking down on the city. Um, it does share a lot of visual similarities with the city that we couldn't quite place, you know, just about 10 minutes ago. Um, but I, I think all of the Numenorean cities, whether they are all different or not, they all pretty much look the same. <laughs> um, but from this top-down shot, we can see that there's a lot of, like, naval activity going on, like a lot of little boats and little skiffs, like, about the water. And there's a bunch of them that are at bay or at port, rather. Um, we see a watchtower with a giant fire burning atop, which is um, which we had also seen in the previous shot of the like big statue guy from a distance. Um, it reminds me a lot of the high tower um, from uh, Westeros, which only gets like kind of like a CGI quick shot in season six, episode ten. But the high towers um, are going to be a key part of um, the new show, House of the Dragon. And I imagine we're going to actually see the high tower in that show as well. Um, so we're going to have dueling giant towers with giant fires atop them. So just just get ready for that. <laughs> um, so the narration continues as the screen flashes, the legend begins. Um, it says darkness will march over the face of the earth. Um, and then we see two CPAs talking about generally accepted accounting principles. Um, actually, no, this is uh, Gilgalad and Elrond. But I think my biggest complaint about anything with the show aesthetically is that the elves do not look weird. They Thank just you. look like fucking uh, boardroom people, people yep. I used to work with. They look like CPAs. Um, they look like people who like get kicks out of balance sheets and nothing else. So. Yep. Uh, that that's there. They're talking, and you kind of mentioned that Gilgalad and El Gilgalad and Elrond have a sort of father son relationship of sorts. Um, so this is them actually interacting one on one. Um, <sighs> and uh, l real quick, I'll just finish up here. Is that while uh, Gilgalad is saying darkness will march over the face of the earth, we do see a column of orcs um, kind of working their way across a bridge and up a hill. 
um, over a causeway, however you want to say it. Um, but it vaguely kind of, you know, in, invokes vibes of the orcs pouring out of Minas Morgul. Um, I guess maybe that yeah. I feel like this is the only real shot of orcs we got in this trailer, which is one of my disappointments because I think the actual orc costuming looks fantastic, mm-hmm. um, at least based on some of the preview shots. So I would have liked to see more, but um, they might be holding back the orcs. They might not be like, I'm so used to Lord of the Rings and even the Hobbit where it's just like the orcs are, you know, your stormtroopers, So they're just going to be mm-hmm. around at all times, but that might not actually be the story that's being told here specifically. So they might be held back uh, for quite a bit of the season. Yeah. Uh, So this is interesting. So this is um, today I was looking at all of the posters and someone did the hard work of identifying all of the posters that they originally uh, uh, published and putting the names to them as far as we know. And there's the one that I thought kind of looked Sauron-y or Witch King of Angmar-y is gone with someone named Adar. And Adar in Sindarin means father. Uh, like shortened to Ada, uh, you hear Arwen say it quite a bit in uh, in in the Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson films. And um, I, I I was like, what what the fuck is going on here? Uh, so I went and did some digging, and the good people of Reddit, and that's the last time I will ever say those words, uh, have kind of pieced together that this is probably a major character from the Silmarillion, and also there's some notes that say that like. This character, well, we've done the spoiler thing, right? So it's probably Maeglin. Uh, and Maeglin is the son of the dark elf Aeol, uh, and, and, uh, Arathel, uh, the, the, the white lady of the Noldor. Uh, and, uh, and Maeglin is the one who betrays, you know, whether willingly or through torture, betrays Gondolin to its fall and fall of Gondolin, which is one of the kind of famous Tolkien works, auxiliary works. Uh, and, uh, Apparently, this seems to be. I feel like that kid, the kid. Apparently, I've never been on TV before. Uh, sorry, I'm truly reaching delirium here. Uh, so it seems like they're going to send Maeglin back to Middle Earth. I don't think we, I can't remember if we get confirmation that Maeglin's dead during the, the sack of Gondolin, uh, but it sounds like they're going to send Maeglin back to Earth uh, and have him kind of be Sauron's lieutenant. Um, but the Amazon execs apparently interfered because originally the costume design for Maeglin was going to be very, very orky. Um, and they wanted him to look more like an elf. And this is interesting because that's a good bit of lore. Uh, so the orcs were originally elves who were tortured uh, or willingly became uh, like thralls to Sauron who who were then tortured into becoming this kind of corrupted, uh, like evil race of, of the orcs. Uh, and so having Maeglin kind of show up as this like half orc figure who's there to do the kind of uh, marching for, for Sauron would have been a really interesting thing. And then it sounds like the Amazon execs kind of got in and were like sex him up a bit, which is quite funny. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, uh, interesting that it's a, it's a choice. It's certainly a choice. Uh, it's a justifiable. It's a canonically justifiable choice. So I will give them that because that's kind of the stuff that I've been like saying they should do. But it's a capital C choice. There's some. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gilgalad continues. It will be the end, not just of our people, but all peoples. Um, that first bit is set to a shot that I think we've seen before. Or at least we've seen pictures of. Um, it's various like white birds circling a ship over kind of like a sunset and they're just like kind of out at sea. Um, I kind of like the shot composition here just because it has some really striking golds and whites, which is not mm-hmm. like a color combination you see a lot in um, whether it's blockbusters or prestige TV or whatever we're calling this. <laughs> um, it's just a good combination. 
Um, Galadriel's like looking up at that. Uh, she has a like a pale white dress on, and she's bathed in the golden light. And just the way she's looking at the birds, I don't know why, but I got a Jurassic Park vibe from like <laughs> the end of the first movie um, when they're escaping the dinosaurs and like all the carnage that just happened, and they just like look out their helicopter window and they just see a bunch of like geese or birds just flying. Um, and it's kind of just reminding them, oh yeah, like shit can be beautiful and nature is okay. Um, I, I don't think that's going to be a thematic overlap here, but I just got that vibe watching this. Next up, we got, uh, Muriel of Numenor, which we've mentioned that name quite a few times already, not in great context. Um, but here we see her looking up at something as she's walking through whatever city she's in. Um, it might be Ash, but also when they cut to like, a bird's eye shot of like looking straight down on her. Um, it could be like flower petals or something. Mm-hmm. Um, whether this is like ash that might be from some kind of cataclysmic event that's like raining down on the world, or if it's flower petals like heralding like the coronation of a new king or something like that, it's hard to tell. Or the arrival of someone, say, to a city. Um, what are your theories on this? Oh, lordy. Uh, yeah, so Muriel. Um, Muriel is by rights the ruling queen of Numenor. Um, Numenor had uh, had latitude for, for queens to rule. Women could inherit the throne. Uh, and Muriel should have been the ruling queen of Numenor, um, except her cousin, uh, Arfarzon, raped her, took her as her wife, uh, his wife against her will, uh, and usurped the throne from her. Um, and, uh, she was kind of basically kept as a, as a hostage. Uh, she was, she, she was, she was forced into this kind of, uh, hostage situation, I guess. I don't really want to call it slavery, but, but it was, it's an awful situation. Uh, and Arfair Zone is the one who, uh, bends over immediately for Sauron and, 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 you know, bends to me. Um, and Muriel, unlike the kind of rest of the ruling, class of Numenor bar Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion, uh stays faithful to the Valar uh, and does not like kind of give in to Sauron's demands. Um, and this is a really kind of significant part of her character. But what is even more a significant part of her character in the Silmarillion is the fact that she doesn't get to rule. She does not get to rule. She does not get the chance to have the throne. Uh, so it is interesting to me that they've aged her up as much as they have. Uh, and I think you're probably spot fucking on with the, it's probably a coronation. Um, I think they're probably going to make this like usurpation of her throne a kind of big part of the first season. And I suspect this is going to be her looking on during Arfarazan's uh, coronation. Uh, and it's probably going to be like a big kind of moody personality moment. I'm annoyed yeah. by it, but I'm going to save it. I'll save it for later. Uh, but yes, Muriel is one of the most fascinating women characters Tolkien writes. Uh, and I'm a little, uh, not even a little, I'm a lot sore that I don't think they're going to really do her the justice she deserves. But here we are. I don't have a billion dollars, so who cares what I think? <laughs> I will say if you are interested in the gender politics of secession and primogeniture, um, that's exactly what the new throne show House of the Dragon is about um, because it is, it is essentially the story of three queens um, and only one of them is actually in line to rule um, but the other queens were either passed over um, previously or have a son that they want to place in power um, and I, I think the material handle, handles it well at least in the book um, we will see how the show does but if that is something that interests you um, that is exactly what House of the Dragon is about in full but also a bunch of like dragons flying around and lighting shit on fire but (laughs) anyways um 
what's it called? Gilgalad was saying that it will not just be the end of our people, but the end of all people. And this is probably the next most fascinating stuff. Um, we see the Harfoots um, who are looking what appears to be the meteor or whatever that crashed into the ground. Um, there's like cinders in the air and we get a picture of, I'm calling, I'm going to call him the stranger. Um, hmm. And he's like bearded, has long hair, um, darker long hair. It's not like white, like Gandalf per se. Um, but he is definitely, uh, what's it called? Um, in the fire or in some kind of like hot mess, like literal hot mess. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Um, but um, as we've kind of alluded to, it looks like the Harfoots are, or like our main Harfoot characters are going to be at ground zero of wherever, whatever, wherever this meteor landed, if it's a stranger or not. Um, and this is, you know, we saw the shot in the first trailer of like the Hobbit hand holding what looked like a wizard's hand, or at least someone wearing what would be robes we associated with Gandalf. Um, and, you know, I kind of thought maybe the meteor man is going to be a wizard, even though the timeline doesn't line up. Um, but it would be really, really in line with what they've been saying about like, oh, the Harfoots are going to be like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. If like they do like that Frodo Gandalf relationship, but it's with the guy who would become Sauron. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like there there is some actual narrative richness to that, or at least a lot you can play with if like that kind of happens. That would um, rock. So I, I have no basis in that, but that's kind of like the theory I'm working with uh, until we see otherwise. Um, that's followed up by a shot of Elrond being walked across a bridge with a dwarf guard. Um, he is in Moria. I don't know if this is the bridge of Khazad-dûm. Um, it very well could be, but because Moria here does not look anything like the Moria of Fellowship of the Ring, you can't really say um, Elrond, I, it's hard to tell if he's a guest or a prisoner. His hands aren't bound, but he definitely has a guard escort. Um, and the expression on his face could be read as either worried, but also possibly impressed at Moria. Um, and we see that the dwarves here are in like full lobstered mail, um, including helmets and helmets that have face guards. So we don't really see them. Um, they are of course brandishing axes cause I guess that's their weapon class in middle earth. <laughs> I kind of hope they play up some of Elrond's weird politics because like as much as I am part of the Elrond is baby camp, I'm also like Elrond is a bitch and has insane politics. And I think it would be kind of fun to play up that duality of like, oh my God, somebody please put this like poor uh, elven lord into a bed and let him sleep for a bit with the, but also then immediately execute him for his awful politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sad you didn't call him a dumb bitch, so I can't do my Durin 4 speaking of dumb bitches transition again. Fuck, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Aaron's a dumb bitch. Lego. <laughs> speaking of dumb bitches, <laughs> Durin. <laughs> um, he takes over the narration here, um, and he says, I am sorry, but their time has come. Um, no real indicator of what he could be referring to. Um, but we see him uh, breaking a stone, which we saw him breaking in the first trailer with like kind of a group of people around him. Um, whether I feel like this is either them like laying the first stones for Moria, but considering what we've seen of the trailer so far, this probably might be like we've discovered Mithril here or what is this? You break it. It's hard to tell, but it has very much of breaking the first stone on a giant construction project kind of vibe to mm. it. Um, so I'm thinking maybe it's like they've already established Moria, but the, as they've dug deeper and deeper is when they've discovered Mithril um, and they're setting up new construction for that. That's kind of my best guess at it. Yep, that's about as best I can do as well. 
Oh, it's good. I, I'm I'm glad that I'm like the dumb person on this podcast, and some of my uh, predictions might be at least in the realm of possibility. No, I think you're probably spot on with almost all of these, to be honest. Oh, thank you. She's not just saying that. I swear, I'm not holding <laughs> a gun to her head. I'm getting paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> she is. <laughs> um, but uh, so we get some more ice climbing. We saw Galadriel doing it in the first teaser. This time it appears to be some other dude. Um, who this other dude is, whether it's the other dude that Galadriel was talking to in the ice a while ago, can't really tell. It's more of an action shot. We see ice falling and then this guy kind of avoiding the ice. Uh, we've all seen the Game of Thrones episode where they climb the wall. <laughs> it's it's hard not to think of that, which, you know, I'm always mm. thinking about that anyways. <laughs> the next is we get a character, Hallbrand, who I believe is fictional to the show. Or, yep. sorry, they're, they're all fictional to the show, uh, but is created for the show. He's in some kind of hall or meeting room or throne room. It's really hard to tell. This is one of the spots where I flag the costumes, specifically the ones in the background, just kind of looking costume city, uh, party city, whatever the term is, um, just like not super detailed and looking just kind of cheap, clothy. Um, but the set does remind me vaguely of the Great Sept of Baylor, um, which most of the show people will recognize as the thing that Cersei blew up at the end of uh, season six and taking Natalie Dormer with it. Um, no real idea what it's supposed to be. I do think Halbrand is kind of fashioned in Vigo uh, aesthetics. Um, oh, they're just the way his long, dark or medium length, dark hair and like the beard and just the general like hottie vibe that I think it's supposed <laughs> to be giving. Um, that's kind of what I was reading into it. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I, I feel like I should preface this with I quite liked the Game of Thrones show. I can't really remember the last couple seasons at all, but I did quite like it. So I don't really have anything against it. But I also don't really feel like the Lord of the Rings needs Game of Thrones. And it's the shots like this that worry me that this is that they're just going to do Game of Thrones. And like, I know I'm probably one of the most annoying people on Earth because I do argue that there are like quite aggressive and interesting factional politics at play in in Lord of the Rings and in the Silmarillion that probably do deserve some better surfacing than what they get now. But and I don't mean this as an knock against Game of Thrones, but like I didn't want it like this. <laughs> like I wanted it in its kind of own interesting uh, Lord of the Rings way, and and not trying to be Game of Thrones Part Two, um, or compete with the uh, House of the Dragon, not How to Train Your Dragon, as I've been doing all day. Um, it has to be something different because they're not going for the same things at all. Like like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, I know it's kind of a, a tautology at this point, but they're not the same thing. And they're not even trying to be the same thing. Uh, and I don't want the show to kind of try to basically ambulance chase Game of Thrones because nobody fucking needs that. Yeah. Um, it's been a failure for any show that's tried to chase Game of Thrones mm. uh, so far anyways, whether it's in terms of scope, scale, or fantasy. Um, I think The Witcher is kind of like borne out the best of those, or at least for me, but it's not trying to be game of thrones either yeah. or it, um and I, I i totally agree with you like as someone who obviously loves both those things <laughs> like they are two distinct things and part of the problems with me especially near the end of game of thrones is they were trying to be too lord of the ringsy and i mean yeah. that in terms of the films um they were trying to create like the battle of helm's deep essentially at winterfell or this that and another and that's where it failed when the strength of the show was treating it as like a BBC stage show when it, you have Sean Bean acting against, you know, uh, Nikolai Coster Waldau. It was, I mean, I think some of the battles absolutely bang and some of the action is great, but I'll always come back to Game of Thrones was great because of the scenes where two people talked in a room and there was a lot of performance, there was a lot of catharsis and narrative value in it. Um, and, you know, Martin kind of goes both ways on it. Like, 
sometimes he does dedicate a full chapter to a battle. Um, and you'll see like Catelyn Stark talking about watching, you know, formations move. But sometimes those battles are completely in the margins or happen off screen. And we just catch up with the aftermath later um, because they're never they're never as important as the characters and what they're going through. Um, so I don't love that this show appears to be taking a lot of cues from Game of Thrones when I really like those like I like to segregate the two yeah. Um, as much as they're drawing from a lot of the same pool of stuff. And Martin is very much pu- uh, pulling from Tolkien. They both created distinct things that kind of exist in tandem and not in competition or um, in a way that one ne- needs to take from the other, um, especially visually and from one TV show to another. Um, I really hope that, like you say, that they just don't lean that hard into the game of Thrones stuff, because I think what's there there's plenty to go on without having to necessarily sex it up or violence it up or action it up for no no reason other than it reminds people of this other thing that they also paid a lot of money to watch for eight years or whatever it was. <laughs> so now we kind of go into our last set of uh, uh, voiceover narration. Um, I believe uh, who sa- I believe this is actually I forget who's saying this. I thought I put this in the notes somewhere. Um, I guess I did not. Uh, but anyway, um, someone is saying the past is with us all. And the response is the past is dead. We either move forward or die with it. Um, this is the part where, um, the kind of the scenes in the trailer start coming fast instead of just like kind of lingering with one character or one shot. We see a bunch of stuff happening all at once. Uh, we see Aaron Deer in armor. He is the elf that I believe is also a creation for this show. Um, then we get a charging horse line. Um, it looks like Galadriel might be in the lead here. Um, there's a single white horse, and it looks like a long, blonde-haired person is on it. Um, it's hard to tell, though, especially when so many people, at least in Peter Jackson's trilogy, had long blonde hair, mm-hmm. um, whether that has any significance or not. Um, we get a shot of Harfoot's hugging, which, you know, good for them. Physical affection is a positive in my books. Um, we get Galadriel on a raft, um, which is kind of a continuation of shots we had seen earlier. Um, in the shot, the sea is very stormy and the raft looks to be capsizing, um, but the shot kind of cuts off right there. Uh, we get a different shot on a boat. We get a shot of a seal door, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and him and all his crewmen are in blue tunics um, that don't look that great to me either. They just look like potato sacks that are blue. <laughs> um, the blue tunic in Ocarina of Time looks way better. And that's on like 64-bit technology back on the N64. <laughs> um, we see uh, Galadriel and Elendil on horseback. Um, oh, it is Elendil that's revealed to be uh, saying these la- lines, the past is dead. We either move forward or die with it. Jesus Christ. Um, so we have Galadriel and Elendil. They are on horseback on a beach, uh, probably a Numenor coastline, probably making their way to or from one of the cities. Um, I will stop there because I'm sure Emily has something to say about all that. Do I ever? Uh, first off, Kylo Ren writes, the past is dead. Second off, don't ever, not for a second, do I believe that that is something that Elendil would say. Uh, it's not like Elendil has like a huge amount of characterization. I don't even think he has a full fucking line in any of the books. Um, but Elendil's pilgrimage slash crusade alongside his sons is about maintaining the past as it was in Numenor. It's about, it's about maintaining the legacy of Westerness. Uh, and, and they go with 
they go to Middle Earth carrying the memory of Numenor, and that becomes such a powerful and ingrained part of, of the this new kingdom that they create that it lasts for 3,000 years afterwards. I do not believe that Elendil would be a cynic. I don't believe that he would be against kind of holding the past uh, in one's heart. I, I don't I don't really buy this. I think this is all kind of part of their, like, they're going to grunge up the men and they're going to take them from being like the noble men of Numenor to being the kind of like fucking Medici's of, uh, of Adonia. And uh, I don't, I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Um, the other thing is, I think they've missed out on a trick here. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you know, this is just a teaser trailer. Maybe there's going to be more. I would have sent Elrond to do this because Gladriel never talks to Elendil and and Canon. So whatever, I would have sent Elrond to do it because Elrond's twin brother Elros is Elendil's ancestor. Uh, and so you would have had, with a little bit of setting up, a little bit of vamping from the show at the right points, you could have had something really, really incredible there with having, uh, you know. Elrond, who who's been missing, who has lost his brother for uh, by like a thousand years at this point, seeing the, these people who are related to him and who are, are are kind of the living memory of his beloved twin brother on Earth, uh, having to kind of interact with them at this distance, uh, this distance that immortality brings, and that would have been a really kind of impressive and an interesting way of handling this kind of question of immortality and mortality, which is obviously one of the most important themes of Numenor, uh, the Numenor plot. Uh, Galadriel is kind of a bit like she's a bit removed I know they're probably just positioning her to be like the middle man kind of go between she's going to do everything all the time run around and be the main character and I guess I'm kind of fine with that but I'm also like why would you kind of score this own goal right off the bat Um, and uh, yeah a bit of a waste Um, I'm also like I don't know Um, I'm not against hearing from a sealder I'm certainly not against, well, I am against hearing from an Aryan, but I don't think I would be totally against it in theory. Um, I think there's something a little bit weird to me about hearing from Elendil in the same way, because Elendil is kind of just meant to be this mythic figure. Like in the same way, I don't think uh, they've ever done a particularly compelling adaptation of Beowulf, because Beowulf as a character is kind of untouchable by like reality in a sense. I feel like Elendil kind of fills that role for uh, the mm-hmm. legendarium, and I don't really think any actor alive has the presence to kind of pull that off. So I think this is also kind of an own goal in some ways. But you know, uh, I'll be nice and and wait until September second to say that <laughs> definitively. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so the next shot, we're kind of approaching the end of the trailer. Um, we get a crowd of Numenorians cheering for someone. We don't initially see who that is, but the camera turns around, and that is Al for. Farazon, sorry, I don't know the pronunciation. Al Farazon. Al Farazon. I think I just spelled like <laughs> spelled it like completely like garbage in the show notes. Um, who's played by Tristan Gravel? Um, so you know that's the whole thing. And we kind of talked about uh, Al Farazon's whole thing. Is it Al or R? R A R. Okay, I'm gonna call him Al. No, that's uh, fair. Like the Paul Simon song, but yeah. uh, R Farazon. <laughs> And she's typing it out for me because I'm embarrassing her. So that's where we are. <laughs> um, we return to Durin now, who gives the next voiceover. This could be the beginning of a new era. Um, we see a single horseman with a spear. Uh, we see Durin holding up what appears to be Mithril. It's a shiny stone, and that just would make the most sense. Uh, we see elves drawing swords, like a circle of them. It kind of reminds, uh, if you've seen the meme of like the Knights of the Round Table all laying their swords <laughs> together. Um, it kind of has that bit of a vibe. Um, 
you know, I always love when men draw swords together. Let this be the hour for it. I'm always down <laughs> for that. Um, we also see Arondir once again. He's fighting like a wolf or a warg. He also appears to be chained. Um, this appears to be some kind of like clearing in a forest. It's really hard to tell. Um, there is like other people visible in the background or at least one other person, whether they're prisoners or whatnot. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, I guess this will be your like action set piece quota for whatever episode this is in. Um, and then we see uh, Galadriel, Morphid Clark uh, fighting the snow troll or a troll or whatever it is um, that we kind of alluded to earlier. Then we get the Meteor Man once again, and this is probably the most interesting, or this will be the like shot that launches the most theories because he is amidst fire and rock, um, and then it cuts to a bird's eye view of him and the way that the fire is looking about him. He looks to be like the cornea or retina or whatever of a fiery oh, lidless eye. Um, which is, um, you know, evocative of Sauron. They actually did a similar trick in um, the Hobbit films um, where they made like Sauron's like corp corporeal like silhouette or shadow be the actual retinue or cornea. I don't know my eye parts either. I'm not an ophthalmologist. <laughs> um, add that to the list of professions I have said I am not on this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it looks to be like a flaming eye. And then all of a sudden, all the flame is drawn into the center and the screen goes black, which I think is a pretty cool effect. Um, I again, I can postulate that this is Sauron, um, but and the imagery definitely gives it away. But uh, it's definitely something that people are going to be talking about. I assume the most coming out of this trailer. Yeah, I'm now convinced more than ever that this is a fake out, and it's almost certainly going to be maybe not Maglin, but someone like this. Uh, I, I, I. Um, yeah, I'm now 100%. There's no way that's actually going to be Sauron. They're going to want to do the like whole we're smarter than the audience thing. I, this is going to be some fucking throwaway character from this film. Not to say that Maglin's a throwaway character, but there's going to be something like that. And I, now I'm convinced this is it. Yeah, um, there's always... I mean, that's another thing we talk about our like pop culture landscape, like the fakeness in trailers or purposely misleading people. Um, that's always been a th or not always, but that's been a huge thing in the last 10 years or so, especially with all the Disney stuff specifically, um, whether it's Marvel or Star Wars. So we'll see if this is just some creative, like, you know, red herring kind of editing. Um, otherwise, it's a pretty big tell in terms of where the story might be going. And then finally, uh, our last shot of the trailer is we see some blackened feet um, walking across screen, as in they look, they're hobbit feet, but they're clearly black, whether it's from exposure or just all the dirt on it. It's hard, hard to quite say. Um, these are supposedly the feet of Sadok Burroughs, <laughs> which every time I see this word, I, I feel like I'm going to say sad sack <laughs> each time, <laughs> uh, which also probably is a hobbit name. Um, but he... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sadok appears to be leading the Harfoots, including the ones we know, um, Nori and Honey. Uh, that sounds like a Mariah Carey song, not a <laughs> Hobbit. Um, but like he appears to be leading them across the field, away from camera. A little bit of Frodo and Sam walking through the Shire uh, vibes a little bit. Um, and then the song that was singing earlier kind of comes back in, uh, saying the words, away I must wander this wandering day. And with that, we get the, you know, uh, Amazon's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power title card, you know, Prime Video, um, all the kind of copyright, whatever bullshit. And that's that's the end of the trailer. Um, any comments on that last bit? 
uh, show feet, sweeties. That's all I got. I'm just going to make that <laughs> okay. t- joke every time a Hobbit comes on screen. <laughs> I've yeah. run out of material. <laughs> hey, Peter Jackson was making that joke in the movies himself, so it's <laughs> it's more than fair. Um, that, so that's basically the entire trailer. Um, anything else you want to say here um, about it? I guess the thing that kind of sticks in my head and I keep every time we kind of go through each bit of this, I, I keep going back to the fact that they've said they've got this like uh, Chairman Malvoy's five year plan for the show. Um, and and they keep saying they know how they want it to end and they know everything about it. Um, and maybe I'll have some weird moralizing take on that, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing later. But like for me, this is kind of interesting because I'm seeing a lot of these potential rough edges that in this teaser trailer where I'm like, okay, but it can be excused on the basis that like, this is a huge amount of material that they're trying to like sift through and you're not going to get everything right from the start. And like, it might take them some time to like find their footing. But the fact that they're so insistent on having, uh, on them having had it all planned out in advance, I I guess this is kind of coming back to what I was saying up top, which is like, I think they, I think the showrunners should stop doing interviews. Like I really do, um, because I think all they're gonna do is make things worse for themselves, and I think they're like kind of flailing a bit and going into this like unnecessary panic mode. Um, and if they just put out a whole bunch of trailers that look like this, like technically competent, good looking, well scored trailers, they'll be fine. But if they keep going to the press and being like, we've number one, we've done everything perfectly, so how dare anybody criticize us? And then number two, uh, but also uh, anybody who criticizes us is a bore and doesn't know how to do irony. Like they're going to like end up shooting themselves in the feet. So I think they should just take their like two little, two, three little showrunners and like put them in a Swiss bunker with like, you know, money and booze and whatever the fuck, Coke and chicks or whatever. uh, And just keep them there until September 3rd and just stop having them talk to Vanity Fair because it's only going to hurt them. Yeah, see, I was, I I am actually wondering now if part of the reason they've been, uh, doing the whole five-year, like we have a five-season plan or five-year plan, whatever it is, is because a lot of people are mad at how Game of Thrones ended and how like they clearly did not have a plan following running out of the book material. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to get into, like there's a whole story about like when, you know, David and Dan would meet with George Martin and like get some cliff notes about what comes next. It happened like two or three times during the show's production. Um, and I wonder if some of that is just like, because I, like I saw people in the wake of Game of Thrones season eight and granted, you know, it was disappointing to a lot of people and, you know, bad TV, whatever you want to call it. But people were like, I wonder if no one's going to do fantasy anymore because of how bad the end or no one's going to adapt something that's still in progress because when they didn't have stuff, they ran out. Um, so I wonder if this is actually a pitch towards against that being like, Hey, we have all the stuff. We know where we're going. Um, but I, I don't know if that's always also necessarily the best creative uh, decision either. Um, I am watching Better Call Saul right now, which granted is not is not dense like the legendarium, but <laughs> it is a prequel to a very beloved show. And regardless of that, like Vince Gilligan is very much a gardener. He loves writing himself into a hole and then figuring out how to get his characters out of it. Mm. Like that's part of his creative process. He's not someone who has like, yeah, he knows like this character has to be dead before the, you know, proper Breaking Bad would start, but he is not here. And he says he usually doesn't even have the next season fully figured out. Like sometimes they have an idea and they'll make sure to write it down so they know to come back to it. But um, they very much are like, we want to put ourselves in creative jams and write ourselves out of it. So I don't know if necessarily having the next five years planned is 
necessarily, you know, the best um, choice. And there are things during production or based on audience reaction that could affect that. I know with Game of Thrones, they're like, oh, people really liked Joffrey or they didn't like Joffrey, but they liked Jack Gleason's portrayal of Joffrey. So we're going to do write a little bit more for this character or, you know, give him a subplot that we might not have given him otherwise um, because of how well this character is handling the material, how well it's resonating with audiences. Um, so you, you like to see some level of flexibility um, so that you can, like you were said up top, play to your strengths. So if you discover a strength that we haven't highlighted here, you can, you know, kind of reconfigure what you already have going to, you know, highlight or boost those things. So yeah. Yeah. Spot on. I think that was kind of the moralizing take that I was going to have to go take like a million hours to think of. You got that like in, in one there. I think that's totally accurate. And I also think like, it is worth mentioning that like a lot of our beloved stories are winged. Like nobody can look at Return of the Jedi and tell me that George Lucas thought that that was how that fucking movie was going to go when he was writing Star Wars. Like no fucking chance. And I know people hate Return of the Jedi. I will die defending it. It is a Same. brilliant movie, even though it's insane. Like that kind of like flexibility and, and kind of chaos energy, I guess, is good for a creative process. Like, uh, you know, maybe not good for everyone's creative process, but I think there is actually something valuable in not having every second of every day stage bandage beyond belief. And like, you know, like uh, the episode, I don't know when people are going to hear this versus when they're going to hear the, the the actual normal programming that we've been doing. But, you know, we were just talking about the the kind of chaos on set of uh, in the two towers, the, the Rohan flag ripping midway through a take and that just being this like unbelievably beautiful, symbolic uh, a kind of uh, shot in 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 the film at, that had no planning, no prior planning whatsoever. You need to be able to have those kind of flag ripping moments. Uh, and if you don't, if you over schedule it and over plan it, you're basically just putting on a fucking Chuck E. Cheese animatronic band performance. And there's a reason why all of those have gone out of business. Yeah. Um, this isn't necessarily the case, but when people say they have it all like scripted out and planned out, it almost feels like at a certain point they've like turned their narrative creativity part off. Like yeah. they don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, whereas you, you like to think, and you know, when we talk about like people like Vince Gilligan, I'm like someone who's actively and passionately thinking about the stuff he's doing, um, and fi you know, figuring out what works, what doesn't, but he never, st he never stops turning it over in his head. Um, and I'm just kind of projecting a little bit based on interviews, but I don't want these people's like, oh, we have it scripted out. Now it's all just about the execution is like, mm -hmm. no, I want you to constantly be toying with like the themes and the politics of what you're doing. And maybe you'll have an epiphany and realize, oh, we need to restructure this or we need to do this or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that will probably be enough on the trailer today as we're approaching two hours here. <laughs> um, we will at least have one more, I would say, proper preview episode that will come out right before um, The Rings of Power uh, goes live on Amazon. Um, we'll probably have that like the week of uh, the premiere, but uh, we'll at least reserve the fact if enough insane stuff comes out of San Diego Comic-Con and Emily <laughs> needs to, you know, get those thoughts out or they will like destroy her brain. Um, we might do another <laughs> one as well, but um, you will at least get one proper preview episode um, before uh, the show airs. Um, anything else you want to add? I got nothing. I got nothing. Watch this space. <laughs> Watch this space is right. That closes the book on this preview of Amazon's The Rings of Power. You can support this podcast by signing up 
uh, for the Patreon associated with this podcast, which will be rebranding <laughs> uh, to uh, my brother, my captain, my podcast. But um, I'm recording this five days before I plan to announce what the new Patreon stuff's going to be publicly. So I'm kind of like, I hope everything goes swimmingly and I announce Monday so that when this episode drops to patrons on Tuesday, they are well aware that we are going to be rebranding the Patreon to be a full-time Lord of the Rings Patreon. Spoilers. Anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been Emily uh, fucking fading like nobody's business, uh, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, uh, mentally crossing the Helgaraxa and dying like whichever Fedwayan's wife it was that died there. Yeah, um, I will also die in some nondescript fashion. Uh, (laughs) I I have no idea how to close this episode. So um, see you later. Death. (laughs) Death.